HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Stay tuned to A Taste of the Past. We're talking vegetables today. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and today we are indeed talking vegetables or vegetable cuisine, cooking with vegetables. And my guest is Molly Katzen. Molly, who has is probably one of the best-selling cookbook authors in America. Uh, she is cookbook author and artist as well, illustrates many of her own books. She was the author of the Moosewood Cookbook and then the Enchanted Broccoli Forest for all the children in us and our children and many more. I think, what do you have, Molly, altogether? Nine cookbooks? Well, or? actually, I have um, the new one, The Heart of the Plate, that I'm sure we'll talk oh, about is right. number 12. <laughs> number 12, um, okay. One of them is, is out of print currently. I'm, I'm going to kind of redoing it. But basically, yeah, 12 titles. 12 titles. Uh, Molly was, it, with her first cookbook, she kind of boomed on the market at a time when vegetarian cuisine was was just gaining some traction and kind of revolutionized the way that, that one culture and one generation started to cook. And now with her new cookbook, I kind of feel like it's a whole generation and a come full circle. She's revolutionized vegetarian cuisine once again with her book, as she mentioned, called Heart of the Plate, a new book that's just out. Um, Molly, I'm so glad that you were able to to stop into our studio because this is, as you can see, coming into Roberta's in oh, Bushwick, Brooklyn. Love. I mean, it's it's kind of like you know that whole era once again, all over again. You know, it's deja vu all over again. Right? It's so great, young people building their vision and going kind of funky and kind of modular. I just love this place. It is. It's, it is very soul cool. is palpable. And one of these days, we have to go, you know, video on on our 
network. Uh, we're because we're audio, we're radio, but we'll have to do a video so all of our listeners can see what we talk about when we talk about our funky little studio built with you know old bricks and matchsticks basically <laughs> and it's it's a lot of fun and we do good programming on sustainable uh, eating practices and and food and of course and me I give them the culinary history bit of it and that's what I want to talk to you about is the history of vegetarian you know my I consider this morning history right <laughs> it is <laughs> and it is but um vegetarian cooking or vegetarian cuisine really has changed dramatically over the years. When you first published your first book, The Moosewood Cookbook, tell me a little bit about what the cooking practices were like and what, you know, examples of recipes. Well, you know, I actually, I had an earlier than people recognized version of Moosewood Cookbook that was self-published in the early 70s, before the the one that was published by 10 Speed in 1977 is the one that's most familiar to people. I had a funkier, if you can imagine, (laughs) even funkier, um, all hand-lettered, hand-jotted version um, that was reflecting where I was at the time. Very much a book of the 70s, yes. Very much. And um, coming up through um, the love of other cultures, um, young people loving to travel, my friends and I traveling to cultures where plant foods were much more prevalent it's not that they were against meat or that there was no meat in the diet, but it was far less of a percentage of, your, of the dinner plate. Right. And uh, ingredients like whole grains, bulgur, eggplants. Um, this might sound odd to you, but olive oil was considered a kind of oh, yeah. a, a very exotic ingredient. It was not available in American supermarkets, except in a very refined form at that time. So um, very much... Um, Wanting to embrace and bring to this country the foods and the culture of other of other cu- countries. Yeah, it was the backpacking era. Everyone was yes. putting their backpacks on and and going to India. I mean, really exotic places for mm-hmm. the day. You know, Morocco and India, and mm-hmm. um, not that they aren't today, but it was the new wave of travel. I mean, airline travel was you know was still in its nascent stage. Really, right. you know, figure sixty three was the first you know overseas flight, and then so. We were just building on that at that time. Absolutely. and Bringing and, all those foods back. Yeah, that yeah. was... But bringing them back, it's interesting because they were ancient foods, classic, traditional foods in other cultures, but to America, it was considered novel and exotic and somewhat kind of counter-cultural, which was part of the point. You know, that was where we, we were living on the margins, on the kind of self-defined, uh, I don't want to say fringe, but the self-defined like boundaries of... Of convention at the time, it was during the Vietnam War yeah. when I, I wrote the first editions of the book, and it was a kind of um, everything was considered a personal statement. All sorts of personal choices, not just what you did, what you thought about, what you studied, what you wore, also what you ate. That's right. And uh, being a, of of that age in that era, everything had to have that anti-establishment kind of bent to it, you know, and it had to be against the norm, against what you know what. Um, as you said, convention was. Well, it was against the norm, but it was also an embrace of simplicity, um, a kind of, you know, non-material, uh, close-to-the-land lifestyle, right. an appreciation of slowing down and paying attention. So it was not It was also a wonderful form of rebellion for um, young people to stop eating meat or at least to be interested in replacing the meat on their plate with something else, you know, Yes, granted, it was a way of kind of, you know, distinguishing yourself from your parents, and it was very effective. In fact, one of the reasons I developed my early vegetarian restaurants was, restaurants, recipes, was because I felt sorry for my friends' mothers 
who were so confused as to what to serve their kids when they came home from college. Having gone <laughs> off to college and coming back, they went off to college with a, a nice little collegiate wardrobe and came back wearing, you know, fatigue, you know, army olive drab right. clothes and wire rim right. glasses and you're deciding they didn't eat meat anymore. And once you took away the central hunk of steak in the center of the plate... What friend, was left? My, mother, my friends' mothers <laughs> didn't know what to do. They were so worried, so I felt bad. Well, you um, you know that... I remember so much of the uh, the diet from that time, the macrobiotic phase, and you know the the brown rice and the blobs of just as you even mentioned beige colored all shades of <laughs> beige. <laughs> but you you broke the mold even then in terms of what you were cooking. Well, I was greatly influenced by the California cuisine that was just coming up in the early seventies. I was at school in San Francisco in the, in nineteen seventy. And one of the earliest, I call it beautiful people restaurants, had opened right at that time. Um, colorful food. So a real good and cheerful and, must, and very necessary break from the beigeness of the macro, macrobiotic plate. Um, there was a chef uh, who was visionary in bringing together the col- colorful cultural dishes from other countries. That was the first restaurant, I believe, in the country that served pesto on pasta so hmm. the, the emerald green pasta was a revelation it was stunning at the time it wasn't something you could find in a supermarket even fresh basil was exotic right what we what we knew was basil was the dried herb anything and, from a jar anything yes, dried in a yeah. jar yeah yeah so and we did that we, we served curried vegetables with the you know the gorgeous yellow from the turmeric and the curry powder and garnished with toasted uh, cashews and in cut strawberries and made things with avocados. It was just, it was gorgeous food. So here was the break from the kind of remorse cuisine of macrobiotic, unseasoned. I don't want to, you know, be disrespectful of macrobiotic, but it was kind of at the other end of the spectrum from sensual, sexy, colorful, right, edgy food. It was almost that, you know, we felt we had to punish ourselves in a way, you know, and eat this, <laughs> this brown beige blob, you know. Yeah, it was kind of the puritanical kind of... Yeah approach to eating that if, if the food made you miserable it would somehow make you better a better person better person right um and as i say we sort of came full circle but yeah, those recipes were tell us about some of the recipes that you had in the book and, and your method of cooking then you said you used a lot of dairy and a lot of of um i don't know a lot of cream a lot of a lot eggs of dairy, dairy and eggs right? well my early vegetarian cooking was not so much about vegetables and a lot of vegetarian food is not so much about vegetables. In many cases, it's actually about meat, mm. as in the opposite of or the swap in for, the replacement for. Um, and so what I was aiming for early on was something to swap in for the, if, if you were to take the meat off the center of the plate, it was still had that center of plate kind of ethos going on with the vegetables relegated to something decorative on the side right. and really minimal on a the side. A meat two sides. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. But the meat was, you know, in, in those days, big. And so the idea at the time for me was, um, for people who, whose vegetarianism wasn't, I want a plate full of as many vegetables as, as can not fall off, it was more like just I need something rich and convincing so that when the, when the meat comes off the plate and this replaces it, people will know that they've had something substantial. Right. And so there was this kind of need to make people understand. I wanted people to accept a meatless dinner. Not that I was against meat, but I just loved the whole 
the whole creativity of looking for an alternative. Right. But it was very much about the eggs and the cheese, and it was not so much about the vegetables. In fact, that little kind of two-side thing was still there. It's just the meat was swapped out. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I think there are um, people are pretty well educated now, or you know, many people if they're following um, a vegetarian diet, and that is they're not looking for the tempeh and the and the tofu constantly to have to have, as you say, have to have that substitute on the plate. And that brings me to uh, something that it kind of squashed the myth that a lot of people. Contrary to what a lot of people believe, you are not a vegetarian, strictly a vegetarian. I mean, you're if not- you define vegetarian as being anti-meat, right? So there are so many different ways you can define it. I always have a problem trying to define vegetarian because, as, as we've talked about just now, so common it's so common for vegetarian to really be um, a way of saying, "Please keep meat off my plate," right? And that's okay, but what un- unfortunately what it devolves to is anything but meat, and so it doesn't necessarily involve healthy food or even vegetables. So my vegetarianism, my own personal vegetarianism, is that I love plant food so much that by the time I'm done arranging a beautiful plate of food for myself or my family or my friends, there is so it is so cluttered in a beautiful way, in an organized and artful way, with the whole grain and the legume and the green vegetable and the orange vegetable. By the time I have everything I want from the plant world on that plate, there's really not very much room yeah, for anything it? else. So I mean, if, if some meat finds its way on the plate, I'm not going to – and it's delicious and it's sustainably sourced and you know, clean, as they say. I would eat that. Right. But it doesn't often come up. I'm not against it. it I think it's interesting because there, you know, there are different um, movements afoot, the uh, meatless Mondays and mm-hmm. you know, people – I think people are instinctively – cutting down a lot on, on their meat, the, you know, the education process of they still like meat, and meat is good. Meat's a good thing for those who like to eat it. And But knowing that it doesn't have to be, as you say, the center of the plate. One of the mm. things that I, I'm getting, I'm hearing a lot very directly from my personal conversations with many, many people is that there's a lot of interest in vegetarian food. So I like to take the description vegetarian i like to take it as a descriptor of the food not a label of of, of your the person yes, of exactly your right. and people who love meat just fine but they might not want it every night of the week or they might want to cut way back and have much smaller portions and have it less frequently and they want something really delicious a term that's been um, used for uh, some people say it's a new term but I, it's i talked to somebody about the history of vegetarianism and flexitarian is a term that's been around for a long time i kind of like i don't like any terms in particular but flexitarian kind of says whatever you know well it's very um i like food positive statements because i love food yeah um i've been looking for years for a convenient kind of roll off the tongue way of describing vegetarian cuisine it's really hard i mean for a while i was really i was experimenting with garden and orchard based it didn't exactly flow, and it's sort of you couldn't really find an acronym for it. Um, lately, my favorite way to say this is plant-forward omnivore, but okay. that didn't exactly roll off the tongue either. Um, but it's just it's an embrace of the plant plant food world on your plate, making it beautiful, and finding the possibilities, and also the fact that produce is so much better. Yes, well that that's oh what I wanted to move into is that. <clears throat> but I mean, the, your original, your first cookbook was so popular. Wh- I mean, what that and and the and the subsequent few cookbooks that you published right after that is there? What do you attribute that to in particular? Is there any one thing that kind of jumps out at you that made you such and today still such a, a 
popular cookbook author? I attribute the success of the Moosewood Cookbook and the Enchanted Broccoli mm. Forest, which also has sold over a million copies. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Um, it's a beautiful book. Oh, thank <laughs> you. But I also attribute it to the timing. It came out, they were early books. They were, um, there was not much out there at the time. I was very much inspired by um, the vegetarian epicure by Anna Thomas, mm-hmm. which preceded Moosewood by a few years. Also uh, by the by diet, diet for a Small Planet diet by for Francis Small Planet, of course, right. And in the years hence, actually I never say the word hence, I don't know why I just said, in the, word, in the mm. years hence, <laughs> I have become friends, very good personal friends with both Anna Thomas and Francis Morlapay. And um, we're, we're all on the same mission, we're all around the same age, and, and we're still here and we're still talking about delicious food. Um, I, but I do the other the other thing I think that made Moosewood um, so accessible to people, or so appealing, was the fact that there is a also enchanted broccoli forest. There is an entire layer of formality that's just not there. It, there's a personal quality. There's a personal voice because they're all written out by hand. I in fact did not expect when I wrote the early Moosewood, literally wrote with my hand, the early Moosewood iterations. I didn't think anyone would buy it who wasn't my friend, my relative, one of the customers in my little restaurant that we had in Ithaca, New York, that's still there. Um, I I thought it was just, you know, just folks hanging out. Mm-hmm. And it didn't sell overnight. It wasn't some kind of, um, you know, big flash in the pan. It took a few years of a very patient publisher, 10-speed press, Phil Wood, to whom I'm still very indebted, always and in, forever indebted, to just kind of stick with it, keep it in print. Let it let the word of mouth happen. Let it catch on. It took time, but I do think it was comforting to people to have something so personal and informal. Well, and it certainly did change the way a lot of people thought about what they, you know, what they would put on their plate for dinner. Uh, but then many years went by, and you, in fact, had a television show. About cooking for a while. Tell me about that. Tell me about that era of your... <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't... It didn't... It was maybe a period of four years, five, five years, that I had... Um, I was doing some series for public television mm-hmm. in, uh, between 1995 and 2000. Um, I really... I, w- I, I honestly was conflicted. Um, I didn't want to become a recognizable personage. That wasn't my goal, because I'm actually kind of uh, a non... I, I enjoy non-public life. But I also wanted so badly to talk about and show visually the food that I cook because fruits and vegetables are so colorful and beautiful and um, it's so much fun to actually display it. And, and have the, So the visuals on the show were really important to me. We put a lot of work, very fun work, into designing the set and the lighting and um, the props and the different dishes. So I wanted to show the work. And I wanted to talk to people directly with, with an actual three-dimensional voice. Well, and it was, I, I remember tuning in a couple of times. Oh, I, I was you. at the Food Network at the time uh-huh. producing shows, so I said, I want to see what the competition was, what was going on there. Um, but you did, you, your personality came across. It was very nice. It was well, a very, you. it was a, a very um, personal presentation. I was a little bit low-key compared to some of the kind of very intense personality-driven shows that are on now. I, mm-hmm. I, my model was Mr. Rogers. <laughs> I always loved Mr. Rogers. Didn't know he cooked. Right. Well, no, it was just the kind of Mr. Rogers kind of linear, one thing at a time, low key. Um, just hi, people. Let's just. I didn't yeah. do the cardigan or the changing yeah. of the shoes, but um, that, he was my role model for TV. We're here today, here's the stove. Yeah, so present. <laughs> Actually, one of my prized possessions is a letter I got from Fred Rogers himself. 
um, I sent him one of, I wrote some children's cookbooks at, uh-huh. right around that same time. And I sent him a copy of my children's cookbook, Honest Pretzels. And he typed on a typewriter. This was when people were just beginning to use computers. I think the year was 2000. I got a thank you note on, on Mr. Rogers' letterhead. Oh. And it was so elegant. And he signed <laughs> it in his hand. I framed it. And my prized possession. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I was thinking about the um, the Moosewood cookbook at the, you know, and, and and someone, I think one of your interviews, someone had brought this up too. This came at a time when people were kind of still on the on the bandwagon of the whole Julia Child discovering French cooking. So how did you weigh in there with you versus Julia Child's style of cooking? Oh, it was so, it was the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, I always admired her cooking, mm-hmm. but I'd never, the only, actually the one Julia Child recipe that I absolutely bonded with was the Rende Saba, the, the chocolate cake. She really had, the, that was the first flourless chocolate cake right. made with ground almonds. Yeah. So that, you know. Oh, Maida had her, Maida had her had one, but Julia Child oh, really, did, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but this Julia was Child the one, you know, and, but um, other than that, she was somebody to emulate just in terms of who she was as a person and how she was so comfortable on camera. Um, I had the privilege of, sh- of shooting um, a segment. Actually, it was a little documentary for Good Morning America with her with a bunch of four-year-olds oh. um, for one of my kids' cookbooks in the early 90s. And just being in the same room as her in a camera, I learned so much. She's just such a natural. But I digressed. But talking about Julia is the most fun digression. It is. It is. Um, it always is. <laughs> she was, it was a different cuisine, um, although I did use quite a bit of butter. Mm. I didn't have the same pro-butter kind of ethos that she had but um i used butter because we didn't really have olive oil yet and again i was trying to make my my, i was actually going out of my way to try to get richness into my recipes again to convince people that it would be sufficient it wouldn't miss the meat (laughs) exactly (laughs) well but you were also very similar to her to julia in another way and, and you even have mentioned this in some of your comments is that you thought what maybe made the book popular or your books popular is that you weren't preachy you didn't have a didactic sense of of how to do this. Um, how do you has that changed? Well, I'm getting more opinionated and a little bit preachy er as I get older, but my preachiness is largely about wanting other people to not be preachy. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if if people are sitting down at a table together, I really want them to get along and to not take their food choices is their identities and then set up just yet one more way of, of you know, pitting one person against the other. So uh, I don't really want to hear I'm being preachy. <laughs> You're complimenting me for being unpreachy and I'm preaching at you. Um, Hardly. You know, just, you know, the, the vegan judging the vegetarian and the vegetarian judging the person who last night had meat for dinner and might want meat again two nights from now. Um, but just, just I want people to relax and enjoy their food and everything else, I promise everything else will fall into place. Well, we're going to talk about some of those changes that have occurred in vegetarian cooking as well as the new book, Heart of the Plate, when we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years, so it's a fait accompli. 
for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. Hi, we are back here on A Taste of the Past, and I'm speaking with Molly Katzen. And uh, Molly has a brand new book out called Heart of the Plate. Molly, tell me, we were talking about um, vegetarian cooking in the 70s and, and where it's come. What, what are some of the main changes that you've noticed in vegetarian cooking and, or, or maybe that you've introduced with your book? My vegetarian cooking has gone steadily in the direction of the actual vegetable. Over the years, I've met vegetarians who don't even eat vegetables necessarily. Again, we've talked about how it was largely about just avoiding meat. And as produce has gotten better and more available and farmers markets have been blossoming all over the country, um, it's so much easier to make a simple dish that focuses on the vegetable, especially with all the olive oil options. Um, So it's become more and more veg-centric for me. And it's so enjoyable. And one of the big changes for me since the early days of my vegetarian cooking, where I used to put everything together into one big mix, I would have a big bowl, and I would try to—I would go out of my way to make a complex blend of everything I could find in my kitchen. <laughs> everything plus, it always had to have sunflower seeds, and then it would bake, and then you'd hope it would come out in squares. But it was very much about hodgepodge, and that was a good thing. So you know, combining, and now, it, oh, of course, with the eggs and the cheese, right. Now I separate, I keep things separate more. I, Instead of putting in the bulgur and putting in the lentils and putting in the chickpeas and everything into the same dish, I'll keep them all separate. I'll treat each of those components in a very uh, minimal way, just a, you know, a lace of a good olive oil, um, some minced chive, maybe a nut, uh, toasted nut or toasted nut oil. Um, you can see I really love oil now that low fat is gone. Thank the right. Lord. So good riddance <laughs> to you. Um, and then my, that might, that'll be juxtaposed in a kind of mandala setup, a beautiful kind of constellation on the plate. There might be a chickpea dish that has only three ingredients and then maybe four, <laughs> a green vegetable, an orange vegetable. But it's, it's this con- kind of collaboration. So instead of a combination, it's a collaboration. And the vegetable is featured. And the vegetables might play off against one another. Instead of being all put together in a medley in the big stir-fry pot, I might have a mash of nicely cooked broccoli, a bright green mash topped with some grilled fennel in Mm -hmm. a grill pan, topped with some crispy fried very thin onion rings, and that will be like a layer. And I'm not getting all vertical and architectural. It's just that the components are more separate. Um... In the early 70s, a lot of eggs would go into a casserole, and now a poached egg or a fried egg might appear as part of the composition on the plate. Mm -hmm. But it would be kept separate, so there's a kind of visual variety and um, a playful quality of seeing all the ingredients kind of arranged. So I think that's a trend that we're seeing in... In restaurants with many chefs, and they're they're getting the essence of the food itself, particularly vegetables, mm-hmm. to come out. And I think uh, there's a lot more playing with vegetables um, on dishes now. And 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 as I say again, just you know, getting the essence of that food to to come forth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the chefs the chefs I talk to, my chef friends, are very focused on vegetables now. It, it's they don't declare themselves one way or the other, vegetarian not. They just love the vegetables and. It's really considered, you know, a, 
a badge of accomplishment to make a beautiful, you know, roasted asparagus or something something gorgeous that accompanies the other dishes, and or maybe just a platter of vegetables juxtaposed and arranged beautifully. But chefs, I would say, all across the country are focusing more on vegetables right. now. Well, and in fact, there was just a um, a conference yesterday with a lot of uh, chefs and seed producers or seed engineers, and they're talking about what chefs wanting to know. You know, how can I get this particular ingredient? Oh, gee, you could make this taste better. You could grow. I could be concerned with how my food is grown. I think there's the whole movement that we see today. People are more concerned with what goes in their body and how it's grown, and um, that and that means vegetables. It's it's largely about a sense of place. Mm -hmm. Like I think the locavore movement, um, just even slightly below the surface. It's yes, it's partly about sustainability and about you know you a lighter footprint on the environment. But if you go slightly below the surface, it's also about a sense of being in a certain place, in a sense of community, which once upon a time and not that many generations ago, food was. Food was what grew near you. It was what you could get within a certain radius that was um, your home. Home you turf. waited for the strawberries, and you waited for the tomatoes, and it wasn't it wasn't brought to you, you know, twelve right, months right. of the year. And, and um, I think it's interesting because people have taken they they have more of a choice and they have more control over what it is they're going to eat. Chefs have more control over what products they can they can get to prepare. I think it's interesting that we've kind of taken charge of our food. You know, and the, and I have um, my current favorite double negative is I actually believe so I'm a big proponent proponent of home cooking and wanting everyone to cook at home I believe that there is no such thing as a non-cook hmm. so anyone who's planning to come up to me and say I really like your book but I'm not I'm not a cook that was going to be my next question <laughs> for you I, and because you you've always stressed that about not only that it's good and healthy and 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 as many vegetables but that it's home cooked so what do you tell these people when they say, well, well oh, no. I like your book, but I don't have time to cook, and, you know, and I work all day, and, when, you know, it's Or tough. if they're overwhelmed. If, if they're, they're overwhelmed. overwhelmed by choices. Yes, exactly. And, I, I'm, I, you know, here's the, here's the fine line. Here's the kind of artful sweet spot. You want to offer choices without overwhelming people with too many choices. So mm-hmm. the, the, there's kind of a diminishing return. You want just the right amount of option, but you don't want the options to keep going like the train left the station and people feel left behind from cooking, I tell people, I encourage people, first of all, to bond with a super good knife. And the right knife for you might not be the right knife for me. I tell everyone it's a very personal thing. Find one that feels good in your hand because people often, um, their barrier is the knife. I call it the knife block. Um, (laughs) if, If a knife feels good in your hand and it's really sharp, and when it heads for that onion or that apple, it grabs on contact and slices clean through, maybe even with a, a little whistling sound effect. The satisfaction of that sensual slicing you know, pressure that you feel in your hand, that kind of, it is so gratifying. You're going to want to keep cutting things. It's going it's gonna, it's gonna to reverse any possible fear of or intimidation from going into your kitchen. Yeah. It'll make you want to get in there and start cutting stuff. And I also tell people to just try one small recipe. The minute a recipe you make tastes good, it belongs to you, you can make it again, and you are now a cook. You know, I have to say that when I opened the book and was looking through the recipe, I said, well, let me see. What's changed? What, you know, how, how are things? I was expecting, uh, I guess, um, 
more elaborate presentations. I was so surprised. Not just, I don't want to use the word simple, but I guess that's not a bad word. But everything is very straightforward. Everything is uh, the presentation. Yes, you'll have several different ingredients playing in here, but it's simple presentation. And I liked um, the example you gave of the layering of, mm-hmm. of, you know, the mashed broccoli. And then, the, in fact, you do have a nice mashed broccoli Love recipe. It. <laughs> um, but the layering of a very simple uh, foods, one-on-one. And, um, and then, but they play out separately. And, but the dishes and the recipes, they're not complicated. They're not long. They're not, I mean, they're very, it's very simple and straightforward. It's very approachable, very approachable oh, book. I'm so glad. I'm so glad to hear that because the book has only been out for a week. And I'm, you know, the feedback is new to me because I've, it's been in my head and in my kitchen for so many years. I've worked on it for about three years because mm. I test everything over and over. You know, if I forget to write one ingredient down, I'll go back and have to start over. But here's an example. If a carrot, just a plain old carrot, no, not old. A plain fresh Black carrot. Fresh carrot right? <laughs> Let's get the word, word old out of there because my whole point is if a carrot is very fresh and very carroty, carroty carrot that is so carroty, <laughs> that's a hard word to say, that um, you, you're with your eyes closed and you take a sniff and you know it's a carrot. If it's sweet and intense, all I want you to do to it, and there's actually a recipe for this in the book, peel it or not, or scrub it, depending on how whether it's organic and how bitter the skin might or might not be. But in this case, we're talking very sweet. Grate it by hand or in a food processor. I use my food processor constantly. Mm-hmm. I almost never put it away, that in my knife. And all we're going to do to that grated carrot is lace it with a little bit of olive oil, but a good olive oil. So we've got the good carrot, the good olive oil, a little salt and pepper, and that's my carrot salad yeah. now. You know, and everything is old. Everything old is new again is what I like to say, and especially doing this show when I'm, you know, talking about culinary history. And I turn around and I look and say, but, but this is exactly what we're heading into today. It's very much the Mediterranean mm-hmm. ethic, and and that is you don't have to do a whole lot to your food. If you use the best ingredients you can find, the freshest ingredients you can find, don't do a whole lot to it. Have you ever tasted a lentil when you've simply boiled them and you haven't added any seasoning? Aren't they surprisingly mm-hmm. good? Oh, very earthy. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, if you're, if, because people are pressed for time and for skill level, or let's say the skill level is coming up, you're putting lentils in a pot with some water. If you just throw in a couple of garlic cloves and a, a slice of fresh ginger and simmer it, it practically makes its own dish. Yeah. I think that you are, are, this book, with this book, you will liberate a lot of people into approaching the kitchen and cooking, thinking that, oh, I really can't cook, because it is, as I say, very approachable. The proliferation also um, of green markets today, farmers markets, if you want to call them that in some areas, or green markets as we call them here, has certainly turned people's minds around in, in, in how they approach food, I believe. CSA boxes have done wonders. I absolutely believe that the whole kale craze <laughs> um, was generated by CSA Boxes and yeah, community-supported sure. agriculture. Yeah. People getting the stuff and like, what do I do with it? I get, I get a lot of rutabagas. Rutabagas yeah. too. They're the next big. <laughs> let me tell you, rutabagas are, they the, are next the next kale? big thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I love that kale is a rock star yeah. because it used to be a laugh line. Not uh-huh. that long ago, I would talk about kale and people would glaze over. Like, oh, here she comes talking. About. But when I was in my in my early twenties, I, I would be making what we called crunchy granola, and I was the granola queen. And my friends would be hiding from me because it's like oh god here she comes with her granola <laughs> and then granola beca- i'm not saying i started it but no. i was always infatuated with that kind of stuff and then um all of a sudden brussels sprouts went from being something that people would sort of just oh, 
tolerate or maybe not even to this thing that people would just bow down. Oh, a Brussels sprout. And I love that this is happening. It's a little bit on the fetishistic side. It is. It is. But, you know. But I love it. It's a new appreciation for what is really sustenance for our bodies. I mean, just simple foods. Sustenance where there's no line in the sand between delicious on one side and good for you on the other. It's just all good. It is. It's all good. Well, all good in this book as well. And I, I wish you all the luck with it. And I thank you so much for sharing your past with us. And what goes around comes around. Well, it's, it's so much fun to be here. This has been a great conversation. Thank oh, you. Good. Well, please tune in again to A Taste of the Past and tune into Molly's new book when you see it on the shelf. It's called The Heart of the Plate. And this has been A Taste of the Past. And I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.